hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Goblins, gooblins, ghouls. That's what I was trying to say. What month is it? Creepy crawlies. Um, It's February. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It's Halloween all the time around here, baby. But I guess it is weird. That's a weird thing to do at the beginning of Black History Month. It's also the month that. (laughs) Oh, my God. uh, Whoops. Uh, It's also the month that Valentine's Day takes place. And um, is there anything else that February is known for? It's the shortest month. short. Yeah. Short Kings Month, February. It's leap year this month. We're in a leap year. Yes. Oh. Every four years, it's presidential, Olympics, and leap year. There's something crazy happens. You know, that's 2012. That was the basis of that movie. It's like, we're in for something nuts, but no, it was a very boring year. Leap Day William from 30 Rock. Remember him? Sure. It was really... It was really funny. They did like a episode where they made up lore for like Leap Day as if it was uh-huh. like a holiday and you're visited by a guy named Leap Day William. Have you like, ever met a uh, leap year per- birthday person? Uh, I think I've known one or two. And I remember when I was a kid, they told us in school, if you were born on a leap day, then like, you know, when you're 30, you're actually only like uh, five years old or whatever the yeah. fuck. Or if you're 20, but it's like, you're not really only five years old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just by the letter of the law, kind of. Oh shit! Okay, so what if there was somebody who's really hot that was born on a leap day, uh, leap day, and like we're just waiting until they're legal, you know? But it's going to take like a hundred years. Yeah, it must happen to somebody. Yeah, you can. I mean, yeah, you would be. I don't know. You'd be able to buy alcohol. I guess they look at the year on the uh, ID if they're selling you liquor. So could get away with that but you can technically say you okay, I would love to I would love to not be in my 30s you know say that that I'm perpetually in my mid to late 20s although I guess I would be much younger than that it's like a how's that work oh, the math is eluding me you're like a quarter of your age so I'm like I can't do math what am I eight <laughs> no nine <laughs> ten I'm nine I think I'm nine if I'm a day <laughs> person right now I mean, I guess, I guess there is a way around it because you existed on a given day. That's not your birthday. You you existed on March 1st, you know, many years in a row. Right. And that, that how old you are. So I guess, I guess you can still be a number of years old. That is not just, you know, derivative or, you know, visible or not divisible multitudes of four. Not good. I suppose. That's why we uh, do this show, not a math show. Um, yeah. What if we should do a math podcast? Wouldn't that be funny if we just go over math concepts as two nincompoops? You know, that is like, I, I knew somebody years ago who was like a math major and in grad school and stuff. And there's like a subculture for everything, especially if you know grad school people, because they're whatever thing they're studying. There's just like resources of other people that are studying it. And, uh, 
Yeah, I'm sure there is a math podcast. I cannot wrap my head around what that would be. <laughs> Whenever I tried to talk to this person, they tried to explain to me, like, oh, they discovered a new number or whatever. I'd be like, huh? Like, <laughs> how, how the fuck does that work? Um, but I'm sure it's really interesting if that's what you're into. I mean, they could do a counting podcast where it, that would also be an acting podcast because there's an exercise where you're supposed to have a conversation that's like one, two, three, four. Like you, you know, give different tonalities to, to all the numbers <laughs> in a row. When you go to the gym and get really roided up and just be like lifting weights and listening to like the podcast, it's like three. The number that comes after three is four, <laughs> four. Five, like it's for like babies or whatever. Uh-huh. It's because I'm a leap day person. I'm only six years old. <laughs> I, that, could I be, like- <coughs> that could be interesting to do the history of a given number, the significance of three throughout the world history. You know, what's up with that? When did oh, 13 the- become unlucky? Seven. That's an interesting one. It's like in the Bible and shit. Uh huh. That is kind of interesting. Shit. All right, I'm starting my fourth podcast, the Nomads Podcast. <laughs> I'm inviting on the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get into it. He's gonna respond to the allegations. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> he's he's uh, like, she was born on a leap day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's not actually nine years old. She's thirty six. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, well. How do I segue into this? If you are, if you were born, if you, if you are a leap day child and you are now, what is it? 18 times four. No idea. No idea. 50, 60 something. I learned songs from my multiplication tables and we didn't go past uh, nine. (laughs) Wait, I can do this. I'm not completely stupid. 70. Six, 72, <laughs> 72 years old, I think. Okay. Uh, oh, man, why am I doing this into a microphone? What if I'm wrong? <laughs> that is so, like, just Wait, what was, the, what was it again? 18 times what? Four. 18 times four. Eight times four, 32. Four times four, 40. 72. You got 72. it. 72. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you're listening to the counting podcast for children. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're 18 times four and you're born on a leap day, so you're actually 18. You can start in OnlyFans, but you may not want to because um, something happened this week, kind of interesting, which is that the the guy who is the current owner of OnlyFans, Leonid Radvinsky, who is like he he you know bought it out for seventy five percent a few years ago after it blew up. Some other guy who's the exact same type of guy started it years ago both of them were people that ran like really skeevy scam porn sites like like sites that helped you um break into other porn sites by like generating passwords and stuff like that uh both these people suck really hard this one is extra bad uh yeah who knows he runs only fans he um he i i I heard a story and this is i I don't have the back proof to back it up because i did some googling and i couldn't find it but apparently there's like some winklevoss twin sort of shit happening where this guy stole the code from like his fucking wife who actually made what OnlyFans is Hmm. and uh he just got rich off it's a real piece of shit but um believe it or not he's also a zionist so i'm gonna read a little bit from the rolling stone article that i may or may not have uh, used some sort of 
equipment to climb over the wall and get a ladder of sorts. Mm. You you might certain people will get that. Uh, <laughs> he. Okay, so OnlyFans billionaire Leonid Radvinsky and his wife reportedly pledged $11 million to the powerhouse pro-Israel lobby, American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, as you may know it. Last year, according to an internal donor list obtained by The Lever, I don't even know what The Lever is, cool name though, uh, Radvinsky has denied making or pledging the donation. Of course, this is very funny. According to the documents reviewed by the lever, APAC reported a massive $90 million fundraising haul in the following months, in the months following Hamas's October 7 attack, yada, yada, yada. One contribution stood out, an $11 million pledge from a, quote, Mr. Anonymous Anonymous, and also Katie Chudnovsky, which is the name of his <laughs> wife, I think. Also, Chudnovsky. Yeah, I name. would want to be anonymous if that was my name. <laughs> so Radvinsky and Chudnovsky, that's the couple here, right? And they uh they they pledged eleven million dollars to APAC. They've denied pledging it, but it's like very clearly them. The lever was able to confirm that the personal information listed alongside the donation identified Mr. Anonymous Anonymous as Radvinsky, who owns the subscription blogging platform OnlyFans, which is generally associated with adult content, yada yada yada. Um so he denies being a donor, though. He denies that he d- donates money to APAC. It's really weird. I don't know why he would mask it like that. Um, <clears throat> but, like, I don't know. The the What's interesting here is that it's pretty obviously him, and it's raised some interesting ethical questions. Given what OnlyFans is, because it's it's both a thing that has consumers, but it's also not, like... It's not the product. It's a place that hosts people who are essentially like small businesses, you know? Right. Now they're doing stand-up specials I saw on, you know, shows and stuff. Right. Uh, I think Kenny <laughs> was going to yeah. do one yeah. uh, right before he died, man. Uh, sucks. Could have been incredible to to, to tell me, be able to tell people I subscribed to my friend Kenny DeForest's OnlyFans. Would have been an amazing 2020. I think it... I, I may be remembering this wrong, but I think he like recorded it before he died and it still hasn't been released. So Whoa. if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, there's a, a, a Fallen Friends OnlyFans special is out there in the ether and it will come out and be huge. And it's a lost tape. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Could um, be wrong, though. Maybe he, maybe he didn't record it yet. I don't know. At various times, OnlyFans has sort of insisted that like that was their goal is to be like, you could be a magician on here or whatever. Uh-huh, yeah. like, although it's I'm now I'm reading into it. It started by like pop up ad guys, like real scam artists. So it seems like it was about adult entertainment the whole time. Mm. And they've just been like juking in various ways to leverage stuff. But um, some people are leaving, you know, because there are other fan sites that you can host your content on. However, um, so like adult content creators sometimes get banned from OnlyFans because they have all these regulations and stuff and you can't say certain things or whatever. If they find out that you do in-person sex work, that's enough for them to to ban you because they can accuse you of using them as advertisement for that. And so, I mean, like there have been creators in like the top, you know, one percentile who have been kicked off and then set everything else up on like just for fans, which I think is the second most popular one. And 
worked 10 times as hard to get half the money they were making. So it is, it is a real problem if you are the worker, you know, because yeah. you uh, might be your entire income, this thing. And so you might not have it. It might not be possible for you to to leverage your your labor or your business, however you want to look at this in that way. It's a real fucker. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. Yeah. But that's that's basically that's all I know about that. I ran into him a little bit. He's he's real cool. <laughs> he sounds like a real weirdo. Yeah, we could have a maybe he'll join the lawsuit we're going to talk about later. If uh, I guess I guess in OnlyFans people are independent contractors, but maybe he employs somebody who's trying to unionize or file a complaint against him. Wait, there's um, a little bit more. So he ran this company. His first company was called Cybertania. And they, it, it included websites like Password Universe, which in 2000 published a link directing web users to a site claiming to offer pedophiles more than 10,000 illegal preteen passwords. No. In 1999, a site called Working Passes had a link for the, quote, hottest underage hardcore containing 16-year-olds. Oh, God. Yeah, just a bunch of crazy shit like that. I think that was... Speaking of fallen comedians, uh, Barry Crimmins was like involved in getting that stuff um, scrubbed off the internet, and those people brought to justice, right? Oh yeah, that's fucking crazy. I forgot about that. Yeah, because that was a big issue at the like the beginning of the internet. You know, that was a big deal for people with certain predilections, and uh, the internet companies knew about it and were making a lot of money off it, and. People weren't doing anything, and all the politicians were like, "Well, I don't know my the internet from a calculator." And then Barry Crimmins like testified before the Senate and was like, "You better fucking do something about this." And they they did, I think. Right, that was in his documentary. Yeah, that's how we know it. Bobcat Goldthwait made. He also like, if I remember this correctly, he went to like porn stores and he figured out this crazy like password, you know, system that pedophiles were using back then to communicate with each other by just like you go to the store and then you leave a note in a specific thing in a specific bookshelf or whatever back and forth mm-hmm. i might have made that up hey that's a good documentary we should watch it again okay yeah all right <laughs> kenny and barry are uh are hanging out right now <laughs> barry's trying to get kenny's special taken off the internet <laughs> he's like no 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 it's just it's comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh man well uh sp- speaking of heaven and the afterlife a lot of people are going to be joining it uh from the middle east some americans too uh because there were u.s troops killed there was a a strike on jordan where three U.S. soldiers were killed from the Army Reserve's 718th Engineer Company. Uh, a lot of more people were wounded, and this was done by a militia. The U.S. is saying it was Iran because it was done, ironically, by a drone, which is kind of, as far as I'm aware, that's a first, is that the U.S. is getting attacked by drones, the U.S. military. Wow. Um, but it's obviously not good that those those people died but the the reason for it is clearly gaza they are you know the other arab countries have a vested interest in palestinian self-determination and they are lashing out against uh, u.s troop presence around the the muslim world which has not really abated despite leaving afghanistan there's fighting going on in iraq potentially which is like you know 
didn't seem like to a lot of Americans that's that's over, you know, and Obama at several points was like, okay, very on the on the down low, like I'm ending the Iraq war now and like, you know, did a little press conference about it. And then it seemed like it was over. But that's that's still a hot spot. And there are these militia groups that there's been no evidence that they are Iranian or backed by Iran. But the U.S. is just assuming that which to me seems very reckless that you would just jump to that conclusion. Uh, Iran has said that they don't want to get in a war with the U.S., which is a smart <laughs> statement and and thing to want to avoid. But the saber rattling from the U.S. Uh, is seems to be suggesting uh, the opposite that they that they do that they they're trying to make this happen when you know we had. A deal with Iran eight years ago, uh, pretty good, lasted like, what, two, three years, and then Trump just 86'd it, uh, maybe a little longer. But Biden hasn't tried to, to renegotiate with Iran, and it's still, you know, Fortress America, especially now that this conflict in, in Gaza is going on, um, you know, it... it Seems like a real possibility that this is going to spill over into a, a regional war, uh, which is not good. Yeah, I feel like Iran is like always in these people's back pocket as a you know, it's like a Russia gatey type of thing because mm-hmm. like there's a history of you know Cold War connection between Russia and Iran in some sense, and like it's uh, I mean fucking Pelosi the other day was. Saying, "Oh, the Palis- Palestinian support is uh, that's got to be Russia. That's Russian bots, right? They just use that all the time to sort of delegitimize anything that could be critical to the status quo or anything they're doing." And like, I've just heard people kind of organically come up with this. And I mean, there's an extent to which I don't know, you know, what's th- there is there are actual connections on some level, but don't be a conspiracy freak about it. Yeah, I mean, like, there at, at this point, there's kind of two options if you're the U.S., right? You can call for a ceasefire, join the international community, and call for a ceasefire, which is not, by the way, implementing a ceasefire. And that's all. And that's always the. I, I watched part of the California Senate debate, and that's something Katie Porter tried to say when she was asked, "Do you support a ceasefire?" And she was like, "Well, it's you can't just." yell ceasefire and have there be a ceasefire, which is a straw man, right? And, and I mean, maybe some people understand it that way and that that's incorrect, but it's, you know, it, it is important for the U.S. to call for a ceasefire. We, we don't have the power to like force the Israelis to adhere to a ceasefire, but we do have significant leverage and influence over them and we should use it towards the ends of peace, which we are not doing, um, despite however many, you know, whispers were apparently giving behind the scenes to Netanyahu to cool it. Um, and this, this new executive order, which it's unclear to me how this is actually going to be rolled out, but, uh, they're trying to sanction now the settlements in, in the West bank where there is, I think we discussed recently, there is, there's violence increasing on the West bank right now that people aren't paying enough attention to, but yeah, there's two options. You can, you can call for a ceasefire or you can, just keep escalating. And this only goes one way, right? It's hard to, to walk back strikes on sovereign countries, which it seems yeah. like we're yeah, trying to avoid I mean, like a, a, a direct attack on Iran, but it's getting pretty close. Yeah. I mean, if there was a universal call for ceasefire, especially by the U.S., 
and Israel continues to fight, well, then that might make it easier for like the ICJ to get their case across that this yeah. is, you know, a bad thing or whatever. I also want to back up a little bit to the guy I was talking about earlier. Sorry, I'm not done. His <laughs> another one of his, the things that his uh, his first sight Cybertania directed people towards was uh, bestiality, oh, <laughs> which. No. I was just reading about right as my cat jumped in my lap here. Murray, you should start an OnlyFans and contribute to your portion of the rent around here. <laughs> you know, just maybe just pictures of him. Do you think I could get away with that? Did a cat come up with that? There's a cat writing this article. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to pay 30 extra dollars in rent for this motherfucker. So I'm going to try and start an OnlyFans that are just cute pictures of my cat. No. To raise $30 a month. That'd be cool. Is it your, That's your pet deposit? It's like a monthly thing? It's a fucking fee. That sucks. I, here's what. So I uh, lived in an apartment. One of my first apartments uh, in Brooklyn uh, was with like a bunch of other people. One of them had a cat. We didn't pay the pet deposit or tell the landlords that we had one. So my plan was if they like came over for a surprise visit and saw the kitty litter, I was going to have to convince the landlord that it was me who was using it. <laughs> And not a cat, but I'd be like, yeah, yeah I just, that's how I defecate. I prefer it. It's a <laughs> disorder. I'm pee shy, but for some reason, the the, the senses are, are all right in this little chamber and I can poo poo and pee pee. Yeah, you're a cat boy. Put on your little cat ears. Be like, look, I'm a podcaster. You've heard about, it. you don't want to even know anymore about this. <laughs> Meow. stuff happening this week we got tiktok exec under fire from the republicans for potentially being a member of the chinese communist party the tom cotton senator from arkansas continually asking him this question despite the fact that this guy is from singapore he's not a chinese citizen but he's he was doing the king of the hill like are you chinese or japanese <laughs> Yeah, from Singapore. Yeah, I mean, it's weird how closely the language too is is to McCarthy, the bad McCarthy from the fifties, saying, "Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party?" Right. That's that's generally accepted in the U.S. as like a bad moment in our history and not something that should be repeated. So it seems like you would want to switch up the wording a little bit, but he just straight up uses it, which leads me to believe maybe there are probably segments of the Republican base, maybe like these, some of these like teens who like find a random historical figure and gravitate towards, uh, uh -huh. that they, they like Stan Joseph McCarthy and they're like, That's Oh, I cool. could see that happening. Yeah. Like a weird yeah. internet subculture. Right. Oh, our communist hunting King. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, I don't think it made Tom Cotton look good, but to these people and you know it's just anything they do if they're saying the right words they they come off as as based but uh on the subject of republicans though i saw this today so we we discussed this last week how the u.s has now paused funding towards unrwa which is getting people relief in in gaza and uh, you know, there's an investigation that's ongoing, and until the investigation is completed, they don't get a dime and are in really dire straits, obviously. But the Republicans are taking this opportunity to stop this funding forever, 
So uh, this would bar the U.S. from ever, it's from The Intercept, from ever making any voluntary or assessed contributions to the relief agency. On, on February 12th, this could be up for a vote on the House floor, which, you know, this goes to, this is like the border stuff, right? We, you try to, you, you give them an inch and they'll take it a mile, right? You, you, uh-huh. you continually is giving in to sort of right-wing Republican ideas and trying to do, you know, maybe a, a milder version of them or not thinking through the consequences uh, that will, will happen if you, if you give Republicans in America this, this inch. They will continue to implement re- reactionary policy. Uh, speaking of Joseph McCarthy, just go back a second. Um, I was reading Devil's Chessboard the other day. You know, one of the first things he did with the Red Scare was go after the C- he accused the CIA of being secret communists. Really? How how much wronger can you be? Like how they are the other people doing this? You know? Huh? That's weird. Also, he was probably gay, or at least bi. Really? I didn't even... Wow, I missed that part of the devil's chest board. I think, I think what it was is that he hated the CIA because they like had that leverage on him a little bit. Oh, interesting. Well, bad guy, Joey McCarthy. Who did but, you mean was the good McCarthy when you said the bad McCarthy? Was it Melissa Eugene, McCarthy? Yeah, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, Eugene McCarthy, who's uh, I have mixed feelings about, but he was senator from Minnesota, who was like one of the first people to speak out against vietnam and start like voting against funding for it um, that's cool but you said that like we were all gonna be like oh yes of i know I, McCarthy, I eugene mccarthy from the vietnam war era. <laughs> i forget yeah people are i mean it is unfortunate he tainted the mccarthy name for people like melissa you know in other news we have a looming court decision that I wanted to make sure to talk about because this thing is not getting enough coverage. There's obviously a lot of important stuff happening in the news, uh, especially abroad. But here in the United States, there is a really serious threat to um, the power of workers and by extension, socialists and communists to organize. And that is the National Labor Relations Act could all be repealed like that's a very real possibility at this point and uh i wanted to Harry make sure yeah, yeah um he would be he's rolling over in his grave because this is a bad thing and i wanted to make sure we cover it and and i got we got the chance to talk to a lawyer an attorney who deals with this stuff day in day out who is is representing a lot of different militant sort of radical uh, organizers and unions throughout America. Uh, and uh, yeah, we got to talk to him about this this potential decision, uh, what started in, in Texas and what could very well go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So we have an interview with Seth Goldstein. This government had an idea and parliament made it law Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? All right, we are now joined by an attorney at law, a lawyer. He's a partner at Julian Mayer, Singla and Goldstein, Seth Goldstein. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And your law firm represents a, a number of unions, including Trader Joe's 
United. Uh, I want to begin by just asking how you got involved in in labor law and what your your role is currently with the the efforts at, at Trader Joe's. Well, I've been involved in labor law since 1990. Um, I started working with uh, workers at Con Edison, uh, the local one two, and then I represented employees at the AFT, SCIU, and then ultimately I became a senior business rep at OPEIU for the past 16 years. And I'm, I'm always curious about labor lawyers because, you know, a lot of people are kind of who go through law school are shunted off into defending the, the wealthy and powerful. Uh, but what made it uh, appealing to you to, to do the opposite of that? Well, I sort of came the opposite way. I don't think I ever thought I'd be involved with labor unions, and probably in my earlier life I had some negative views about unions. But um, I ended up working with Con Ed workers when I needed a, a job right out of law school. I thought it would be temporarily until I got something else, but I just really fell in love with workers and, and their, um, their struggles and the righteousness of our cause. So now I, I looked this up as of 2023, there are four Trader Joe's stores that are union. Uh, we just had a narrow loss a few months ago here in New York City. Uh, what, what is the current state of Trader Joe's organizing? Well, actually, it was a tied vote at um, Essex Crossing, and we are currently contesting the so-called loss because we're trying to get what's called a CMEX bargaining order. And I think we're going to be successful Oh, because there were a number of outrageous ULP violations during the election and before the election. And um, we can test that under the new standard that the election should be thrown out and the employer should recognize us. So if we're successful, we should have five stores. Wow! Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That's that's great. What what did you say the the particular uh, procedure was that that allows for this? It's called CMEX. CMEX. It's a um, decision that came out in August of 2023, which basically says that if an employer denies recognition to, and we had demanded recognition to the union, the union then can um, have the election. But if the employer commits one unfair labor practice charge, in the case of um, of this situation, it was more than a dozen, then the board will throw the election out and force the employer to bargain with the union. And what are some of the ULPs, the unfair labor practices that, that Trader Joe's, uh, the bosses, are, are throwing at the workers? Well, in Essex, there were a lot of threats made. There were... Um, retaliate there was retaliation there were captive audience meetings a lot of threats um but there have been many many violations throughout the country um at all of the organized facilities Uh, we have oakland minneapolis hadley and louisville in addition and there have been violations such as in the case of hadley a, a um Activist was fired unjustly. The employer, in the case of Minneapolis and Hadley, did not give a equal 401k benefit to the union employees that they gave to the non-union employees. Mm-hmm. There have been violations in 
bad faith bargaining, surface bargaining, delaying and bargaining. There's also been a lot of uh, things that the employer should do that they don't, like give information, bargain over any unilateral changes, and also bargain over disciplinary action. I think last I heard there were like 70 charges still opened and uh, there have been multitude of merit findings in Oakland, Louisville, and um, Hadley, and mm-hmm. Minneapolis, too. Well, yeah, it sounds like uh, the, the warm and fuzzy image Trader Joe's has cultivated as a corporation isn't, uh, isn't all it's cracked up to be, which uh, leads me to uh, my next question. The, the main reason I wanted to interview you, t- you today is the uh, National Labor Relations Act is under attack. Um, Trader mm-hmm. Joe's is teaming up with SpaceX, the challenging the constitutionality of the NLRA. And uh, I wanted to just back up for a second and maybe for our, for our listeners who are maybe a little more basic, uh, what, is, what is the National Labor Relations Act? How did it come about? And uh, what was the economy like prior to, for, for workers prior to its passage? Well, the National Labor Relations Act was a piece of legislation basically to head off um, widespread strikes that were occurring in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression. Prior to the Great Depression, workers had no rights. They were there. They, if they had um, wanted to organize, they would be fired. And um, the oftentimes the governor or the mayor could bring out the police force with an injunction, labor injunction, and you know, beat up strikers and put them in jail. There were cases in the 1920s when mine workers were actually attacked by by the U.S. Air Force that had, wow. uh, you know, had dropped uh, poisonous gas on them in West Virginia. So the history of labor has been very, very contentious. You know, there was a lot of violence. A lot of um, workers died. They were unjustly in prison. A lot of that happened with the IWW um, early in the 20th century. So the framework that occurred was the government had to institutionalize the collective bargaining process, and they decided that they would allow employees to unionize but put some restrictions on their right to strike, to how they organized. The legislation passed in 1935, and then in 1947, under the pressure of the right wing, they created uh, the Taft-Hartley Act, which really restricted union organizing. They, For instance, they got rid of sit-down strikes, secondary boycotts, some of the tools that were used in the 1930s to successfully unionize, and, uh, you know, and also instituted what's called right to work. And not instantaneously, but over time, union organizing fell a lot of times because they had captive audience meetings or they would have coercive pressure because now the employer communicate with the employees. And that's really what has occurred up till um, Jennifer Abruzzo became general counsel a couple of years ago. That uh, West Virginia, that was the Battle of Blair Mountain, right? Where they brought in the military. Yes. And I mean, again, that's the history 
that you don't learn about in AP history, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, that's one of the biggest battles in American history, uh, like fought yeah. on American soil, and they don't teach it in high school. No. Um, you know, that's the – I don't remember that section in my U.S. history book. <laughs> we should do an episode on that. I'm going to make a note. Well, I think we did with uh, Max uh, back in the day. Uh, oh, right. Uh, listeners can check that out. But um, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in my minutia, but I'm really curious about, because, you know, in the Midwest, you hear about the old sit-down strikes of the of the 30s and 40s, and that seems like a significant change uh, from that period between NLRA and then Taft-Hartley. What, what, uh, what is a sit-down strike? What are their significance? And, and what does not having them as a, a fully legal option, what did that do to organized labor? Those restrictions really curbed activism. There was also purging of um, communists from the labor movement during the um, 1950s, which really took out all the good organizers. Uh-huh. All you had left was business, you know, u- unionists, and uh, the um, the passion and the commitment to organizing died in organized labor. And only recently, I would say in the last few years, has been regained as young millennials and Gen Z members have come into the into the labor movement. Right. We're at an interesting stage now where it's you know important to, to remember union density has not really increased all that much. Uh, but uh, I guess labor militancy is is increasing. You know, we have an upsurge, people unionizing workplaces that have not been uh, union before. Um, but that could be uh, taking a hit uh, with this recent news. Um, SpaceX has this lawsuit. They they were forced to come to court because they fired about eight employees who criticized Elon Musk. Do you know wh- what they said and wh- why is it uh, illegal to, to fire him in the first place? And how does that relate to NLRA? They were protesting over... They- the the SpaceX lawsuit, from what I know, didn't involve union issues. They were basically non-union employees complaining about their working conditions. And all of that is protected under the National Labor Relations Act. And it's been that way for 89 years. No one ever questioned after the 1937 um, Lockling case that the mechanics or the law were unconstitutional, but then we have deep money pockets, Elon Musk, who basically decided that the law doesn't apply to him. Now, this isn't the first time this happened. Um, When I was dealing at the JFK 8 election, um, because I represent Amazon Labor Union, we also had a situation where the company, through their lawyers, one of them being Morgan Lewis, complained about the NLRB and basically tried to overturn the election, claiming that the NLRB was too close to the union. So that has basically morphed into the SpaceX case in which we see a lawsuit that has been brought in a region in Texas with a, with a judge who is the only judge in the region that they brought the lawsuit. So they did what was called forum shopping. They looked for the location. Uh, They took a case that should have been in California and they moved it into Texas. And this judge, um, I am concerned because this is the same judge that 
was involved with the um, the mailing of abortion medication. And if we all remember, that went up to the Supreme Court when he issued a preliminary injunction in that case. So this is a very, very serious situation. So um, this is the same judge whose whose case um, resulted in the Dobbs decision? No. Okay. Not the Dobbs decision, but the decision regarding the ability to, you know, to get abortion medication through the mail. Okay. That was a case that occurred after Dobbs. Mm. And I remember that this was a situation that rocket docketed up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, just galling to me how, you know, SpaceX is not union. As, as far as I'm aware, there's no organizing campaign there. Well, I, I hope I'm wrong about that. But uh, and even with that, Musk feels threatened by this law, the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and now you have Trader Joe's kind of joining forces in a way. Do you know how that team up happened? Well, it's evident. Um, both employers are represented by Morgan Lewis. Um, Morgan mm -hmm. Lewis is a very anti-union law firm. Morgan Lewis has two former board chairmen, a board member, Harry Johnson. Harry Johnson is leading the SpaceX case and Morgan Lewis is now spreading the same argument they made in SpaceX to Trader Joe's. And what is the what are the merits of that argument on unconstitutional grounds? Do they do they have a, a case there that that it is unconstitutional? What's what's the logic they're they're using there? Well, only if you accept a Looney Tune view of the law. I mean, <laughs> I suppose you know if you if if you take Hamilton and you know. This concept of separation of powers, which is a Federalist Society designed um, action, that there are three issues here. One is that they're arguing that administrative law judges can't be removed by the president, that they have protection. The next thing that they're arguing is that it's unlawful under the Constitution that board members have that protection. Second issue has to do, they think that any uh, remedies like consequential damages or anything more than just like getting your back pay has to be tried in front of a federal judge. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is they're questioning whether or not um, the board members can have both legislator adjudication and prosecutorial authority, um, which would paralyze the National Labor Relations Board. And we could all see what would happen in a situation like this. Um, if Elon Musk wins, would not, would not employers ask for restitution from employees that they had verdicts against and they paid? Would they not go after unions for back money? I, this is a terrible decision and everybody's um, hair should be on fire about it. And not decision, but but, but situation. And um, this is going to, if if the judge issues a preliminary injunction, which at this point is being argued because um, right after they filed suit, SpaceX asked for a preliminary injunction, and the papers opposing the preliminary injunction were due on Friday, um, and then I believe that the the uh, charging party and the board asked for the case to be transferred to California, but the judge hasn't ruled on that. If the judge makes a ruling, 
then the mechanism of the National Labor Relations Board could come to a halt, if, especially if he's crazy enough to, you know, uh, to uh, to have a national order. And what you know, one of the things that a lot of Biden apologists will, will point to as you know a, a pretty solid good thing that he's done is is appointed uh, fairly aggressive NLRB mm-hmm. officials, um, and I, I think they are right about that. Um, but what, is this in some ways a, a reaction to that uh, to his his posture with with organized labor? Well, it is true that Biden is very pro labor, putting an excellent general counsel and an excellent board. But the fact is the right wing, the Federal Society, Morgan Lewis, Trader Joe's, and SpaceX don't see it that way. They want to go around the democratic process because, you know, they lost in 2020 and now they want the courts to do their dirty work. And they would love to get this issue up to the Supreme Court. They have put a footnote in there um, brief for a preliminary injunction that they want to see the case that found the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Act overturned. They want it revisited. We all know what that means. Mm. It's a code word that we want it overturned. And I don't know if Alito and Clarence Thomas um, will not do that. And uh, there is a majority there. So a case goes to a rural area of Texas, they figured out where to go, and now if there's a preliminary injunction, they may try to go through the Fifth Circuit right to the Supreme Court. So everybody should be concerned about this. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the the frustrating things to me about the the Biden years is that, you know, you have liberals, Democrats pointing to some good things and a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. messaging that's better. But at the end of the day, there's nine people who have an immense amount of power in deciding things just about American life, economic, personal, what, what, you know, a lot of different aspects of our day-to-day lives are being determined by these, this, this group of, of nine, the Supreme court. Um, what should he be doing to, to try and curb their power and what what is the real potential that that the NLRA is going to get struck down? I've heard the argument that this is an election issue, but I don't think it's an election issue. I think that this is a bold stroke by the extreme right to bring judicial change while we're all sleeping. And um, people say to me, "Start to say this," but you know, we saw what happened with Roe v. Wade, and that doesn't exist anymore. So one would think that it would be crazy that the NLRA would be overruled. I don't think that the right wing is seeking total a total rollback of the NLRA because they like the restrictions on unions, but they could create it, create it into something like um, the Federal Election Commission or something that's so ineffective that um, workers have no rights. So, you know, that's where I think we're going, and that's the danger, because if you take away the tools that the board has, then workers are not going to be protected. And I think that also liberals should wake up to the fact that the American class, middle class, and the American dream that I've often heard of are on the line here, and it seems like everybody is sleeping about it. And and right now, the legal avenue that to from the case right now to out out and out repeal, 
how many roadblocks are on that avenue? Is it is it just a straight shot, or is there you know some way it could be gummed up uh, on its way to Washington? Well, so, I mean, I mean, you mean to the, to the Supreme Court? I, I don't yeah. think there's a lot of roadblocks involved. Um, I think that it's something that would go through the Fifth Circuit um, unless they are successful in transferring it to California, which they're trying to do. And then I think it would be um, a better situation, but um, we just don't know what's what's going to happen in, in Texas. And we would hope that the judge would transfer it. Uh, the the action that occurred took place in California, not in Texas. They just picked Texas mm-hmm. because it was advantageous for them. And they knew that you could get the judge you wanted by picking a rural area in Texas. Yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> it, it really, to me, is a complete usurpation of the of democratic process because nobody has elected people to get rid of the National Labor Relations Act. And I can assure you that customers at Trader Joe's um, are not buying into this type of um, viewpoint, and they would have a hard time with it. Yeah, the, and that's what I want to ask about too. Is is you know that these are two kind of uh, this is an, a, a strange alliance in a way if you're looking at it in kind of a, just an image uh, frame. You know, SpaceX, Elon Musk, kind of conservative-ish uh, edge lord company uh, alongside Trader Joe's, which is seen as uh, sort of like Starbucks, uh, more progressive and Hawaiian shirts, et cetera. Uh, do you think this would have, you know, is, is Trader Joe's worried about that? It, it coming off as too uh, draconian and that, that might eat into their profits? So, you know, Trader Joe's hasn't really had a good few weeks. Um, they thought that they could destroy our union by attacking us on a trademark case, basically alleging that the union was using their tote bags or the design of their tote bags. Mm. And the judge dismissed the case. This was a federal district court judge and said that they were on borderline um, sanctions. The whole complaint was dismissed. And now, thankfully, because I had some really, uh, you know, we, we, we have aware workers that were at the trial. They saw Chris Murphy, that's the attorney for Trader Joe's, amending his answer on the record because he knew I wasn't there or, you know, my um, associate um, um, or colleague, uh, Ritu Singla, wasn't there. And um, they tried to sneak it in. So when the news went public regarding what Trader Joe's was doing, and people started putting pressure on corporate and saying, "This we don't like this. We didn't, you know, we like your food, but we, we don't like what you're doing. Trader Joe's tried to say, well, we're not part of that lawsuit. If that's the case, why did you amend your answer? And why are you still partnering with uh, Morgan Lewis, which is the same law firm, as I said, that represents SpaceX? That's funny. I mean, Trader Joe's image is just kind of cute. So it like, you know, a hipster shop there and everything. So that casts a really ironic light on this, but they're a major company. I mean, this is all pretty uh, obvious, I think, given just what their class interests are and stuff. I want to ask about something. Uh, So they're using this phrase, the major question doctrine. 
to try to justify this going around everything to rewrite the rules of the NLRB. And I read this article, I compared it to this thing called the Chevron Doctrine, mm-hmm. which is uh, something that happened regarding the EPA in the 80s. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you know about that? Yeah. So the Chevron Doctrine was a concept that um, the courts would defer to federal agencies. And that had to do with some of the work that Gorsuch's mom was doing. I I sort of remember that time period in the early 80s, and she at some point was held in contempt. And um, I believe that that was a decision by Scalia, Chevron, I may be wrong, Um, but it it deferred to the agencies. And um, now the right wing is saying that the court should not defer to the agencies. They have a they have brought up this Jess, uh, this SEC case. They they have a few other cases where the court has said that um, some of the administrative law judges are not s- subject to protections, and they're basically going with 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 that concept to try to say that um, the board is unconstitutional. That you know people that are ALJs or board members should not have protections, that they should not be able to, um, you know, that, that the, um, that the agency should not be able to investigate and also prosecute the, these cases. So that's what they're doing. Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking now about, you know, if they, cause this is, I, I would, I would think Trader Joe's wouldn't want to go down as you know, bringing the United States economy back to you know the 1920s, uh, but they may, it may benefit them ultimately to do that. Um, you know, maybe they'll rebrand as like a right wing company or something. But uh, you know, this is a, a debate a lot of people on the left have is is over ethical consumption under capitalism, and and you know, is that uh, actually useful to like boycott companies that are bad and i think almost always the answer is is usually no uh but in this case do you see a scenario where the where the workers at trader joe's will call for a boycott and that uh that could hurt their bottom line and you know some do you see a boycott as is a potential uh outcome of this trader joe's united is not calling for a boycott um you know uh you know and i urge the um customers, although they can make up their own mind to follow what the union is saying, because those are the workers that work there. What they would like is Trader Joe's to renounce its support of, uh, you know, the, the concept that the NLRA and NLRB are unconstitutional. We would like them to be, to bargain in, in good faith at the table. And that is what we are seeking at this point, or they're seeking at this point, not not a boycott. But again, it's really difficult for um, the brand when basically they're arguing for the, um, the rollback of the New Deal. Well, I want to ask kind of a on the New Deal point, kind of a devil's advocate question. You know, back to some of those those communists who were purged after Taft Hartley from the labor movement that that you mentioned. You know, we have friends who are. Uh, of that ilk and and uh will say that uh, nlra nlrb they're both kind of they were compromises and ultimately bad compromises that kind of pacified uh, a very militant movement and uh maybe we would maybe things would have kept accelerating without them uh, what do you make of that argument 
Well, the National Labor Relations Act accelerated organizing between 1935 and 1947. I have heard the argument that we would all be better off um, without the NLRA. But as I said before, I believe that um, the right wing still wants to keep the benefits of the NLRA that benefit mm -hmm. corporations, and they just want to take away workers' rights. So the, the question, I guess, is, are they finished with just overruling the NLRB and the NLRA? And I submit to you, they're not. Mm -hmm. The next thing we'll try to say is that uh, the law on uh, the Norris LaGuardia Act is unconstitutional. ERISA is unconstitutional. There's no ending. What you know, the Department of Labor structure with administrative law judges is unconstitutional. They are simply trying to destroy. Um, it's not. See, the administrative state is a mistake. They're trying to basically destroy the middle class, and they're trying to destroy the American dream because. If you take away the tools for people to bargain collectively, then we're right back to the Lochner decision. I also submit to you that this is a modified Lochner um, view. And can you just explain the, what the Lochner decision was? Sure. The Lochner decision was an early, I think it was right around was it 1911 decision that said that contract, that a contract between individual overrules legislation. And that any legislation um, to improve worker benefits or protections or whatever, like um, in the case of Lochner, it had to do with the New York state law that would um, basically curtail hours of work for, for women was unconstitutional. And it was, Lochner was used to strike down progressive legislation up until the mid-1930s. And they'll do it again. That's what they're doing. That's really interesting. So we did an episode a while back about Javier Millier, the like right wing libertarian guy that took over uh, and won the election in Argentina. And I was reading a lot about what what libertarians and uh, you know small government free market types kind of want to bring things back to. And it's uh, that thing where contract supersedes like the state is real big. I think under under like the the Koch brothers, you know, far right ideology. You don't need a government if if there's just the law of contract right. supposedly can can run everything in a in what they seem to be a fair way. So that that is scary. And that's that like what they're going to, for. That led to the horrible working conditions at the turn of the century, you know, and um, you know the Triangle Shirt Factory. Because businesses could do what they wanted to do and workers, you know, had to submit to it. And that is what these people say when they're talking about, oh, this is an interesting constitutional is in, um, issue. It's not interesting. It's an assault on workers, an assault on Americans. And why are we allowing this Morgan Lewis law firm um, to do this, I'm going to say something else about it. As I said, there are there are a number of people that work for the NLRB. Why did they take a salary from the National Labor Relations Board if they thought this institution was unconstitutional? Why did they serve? Why are they actually litigating at the National La Labor Relations Board and getting paid for doing that? The, the hypocrisy is really, really great. And again, 
we should not just say this is a constitutional issue. No, this is a war against workers. And I think that we all should be out there either screaming about it or hopefully going out on the streets and doing collective action, you know, nonviolent demonstrations, because this could be the most significant change in American history in the last hundred years. Yeah, I think the question of like how to fight this is really interesting because this is happening as a result of uh, something that's really hard to get around, which is the right wing project of establishing like a really powerful judiciary branch apparatus. Uh, Trump installed more judges than any fucking president ever. It's it's still it's it's that you know you there's really hard to get rid of them. Um, that there there are reasons there to argue that like ah, you know maybe you have to hold your nose and vote for the lesser of two evils if that's if there's any way to get around this stuff if you even that's a whole other podcast but if you even <laughs> trust that that's going to happen um the other thing is you know we were talking earlier about like trader joe's customers and stuff like that and like i think it's really important to sort of uh to get out the idea to people that because because we we as Americans, we consider like our consumer power to be more meaningful than I think it actually is, and uh, our individual dollar to be a vote and stuff like that. And I think, you know, something that people don't pay enough attention to with actual uh, unions and stuff like that is that you, you need to like pay attention to whether they call for a boycott because when it's organized, it that's when it's effective. When it's just you as an individual deciding whether or not to shop in a place, that's um, that's kind of a that's I mean, they don't care. It doesn't matter. It, that's just the market. Actually, sometimes it hurts the workers. You know, this has come up a lot with like stuff regarding Palestine because there's, you know, BDS and stuff like that. Um, but like. the I'd say some something positive about this seems to be that this is happening as a reaction to the labor movement as of, you know, recent history, which means that it's threatened on some level by that. So like supporting organizing seems to be a good way to go here, right? Well, there's things people can do. I mean, groups of uh, consumers can go to the captain of the stores and say, we don't like what's happening. You know, they could do a petition. I mean, that's a way to help workers, right? I mean, uh, and I am sure that if a group of um, consumers, people that shop at Trader Joe's that, um, and I know that a lot of the um, customers really do love Trader Joe's workers um, and, and said that, that we, we just don't find it um, within our value structure that you're supporting uh, the repeal of um, the NLRA and the New Deal um, and that you're lining up with uh, right-wing um, extremists and that we want you to, um, to withdraw that defense. That is something that would go back to um, to corporate. Okay, fair. <laughs> you know, that is something that could be done. I mean, that that's not calling for a boycott. It's customers that are asking that their values be honored, right? Yeah. No, I think that's a, a good uh, course of action. Um, and we've we've gone over this a, a bit, but I do want to just uh, instill in our listeners uh, one more time, like the the consequences of the Supreme Court uh, making this this potential decision, uh, which I fear is more likely than not, um, for you, both union and non-union workers in America, what, what is the day-to-day, -day, uh, working life going to be? What are the changes that are going to happen in, in people's lives? 
Well, you won't have any protections at work. If you speak out and uh, you get fired, um, how is your case going to move at the NLRB if uh, administrative law judges are found to have unconstitutional powers? Uh, you know, if if the ability to do what's called a 10J, which is the ability for the board to go to federal court to get people back to work, you could be waiting four or five years to to go back to work. There, there, there are a lot of um, consequences that would occur. And again, the American um, people did not vote for this. This is an undemocratic move by a very powerful law firm with a very powerful client, Elon Musk and Trader Joe's, trying to make change in an undemocratic way. Well, I wish we could uh, be be closing on a, a more positive note, but uh, I definitely... Well, I, I wanted to say something positive. Yeah, please. I think that the heroes here are the Trader Joe's workers, the, um, the Trader Joe's United, because they are fighting this issue, and they um, would certainly like to be joined by other groups to stand up against Trader Joe, Joe's, Morgan Lewis, the things that, that Elon Musk are doing, although they're not directly related with that. I mean, that's a different company, but they are making a stand and they really could use the support of everybody else. And I really do think that this, this issue needs to be brought to um, everybody else, to, you know, local, local international labor unions, to, workers to activists you know to to the american people and they should join the fight because it's a question of what type of country we're going to have absolutely totally. well seth goldstein thank you again for joining us uh is there anything you want to plug at the end anywhere uh, people can can follow you or your work again i'm at julian maris single and goldstein uh, we have a website workingpeopleslaw.com and i also I'm on X, Seth Goldstein, 13. On your friend Elon Musk's website, uh, X. <laughs> well, thank you again for talking to us. Thank you. Okay, that was Seth Goldstein. Great interview. Um, yeah, not good stuff, but it is important that people know about it and uh, start fighting back. But let's do some plugs on our bonus feed, which you can find at patreon.com slash America, and you should sign up for that and get all kinds of bonus content. This week, we dive into an article Anders J. Lee wrote. Whoa. Who is, is my, I am reveal, this is the big reveal, that Anders J. Lee and Anders Lee are actually the same person. Oh, my so. God, you've been living a double life. <laughs> so people- My mind is blown. This is just like Breaking Bad. <laughs> people picking up- I'm, I'm Hank, and I'm in the bathroom, and I've got a picture of Anders J. Lee, and I'm staring <laughs> at it, and I'm like, what? The oh my god <laughs> that could be the experience if this week you pick up a copy of the brooklyn rail and you read an article in the film section uh about inter-gulf war american cinema and you you start reading it it says by anders J. lee and you might be huh that sounds familiar and then by the end it reveals i am also a co-host co-host of the uh, pod damn america podcast it'll come together it'll blow your mind that's right brooklyn rail Anders J. Lee, uh, I wrote about Gulf War movies and a guy named Jerry Haliva, who was a Saddam Hussein impersonator and also a Republican lobbyist. 
uh, is kind of a fascinating story and uh, I think is a, a good entry point into this very particular era in American uh, culture um, when there, it seemed like uh, there wasn't going to be any war, right? Well, war, you know, people were bored. Like we wanted a war almost. Um, the only war we had was like five minutes. And uh, you could kind of tell in retrospect that that some something dark was on the horizon. Um, so I explore a lot of different movies from that time period, Three Kings, Courage Under Fire, uh, Jarhead, etc. cetera. Um, and you can check that out uh, at the Brooklyn Rail in print. Um, I'll also link to the article in e-fashion for you to read. And then if you want to get a deep dive into um, this this subject, uh, even more elaborate than the article itself, subscribe to our Patreon. Please subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon.com, 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 slash America. We need to hype this shit more. We need to be yeah. better uh, <laughs> capitalists here. Um, we're not. That's why the show's so good, because we're fucking commies. We do have some good content back there. About, you know, we're talking about America getting involved in wars in the Middle East. We'll get the first one covered in one of our previous Patreon episodes on the Barbary Wars. Also very good. Also, uh, I some someone came to my birthday party, Crime Wave, <laughs> and reviewed it, and they panned the. They, it was a scathing takedown of my birthday party. I read the piece in its entirety on that episode this week too, which is very fun. So uh, check that out. You'll have a good laugh in your car as you drive to work or wherever the fuck you listen to this. Um, I'm very proud of it. It's the I'm I'm proud of this scathing review i got it's very funny because it's one of those things where they uh they're they're so wrong that it's a compliment it was cool sorry haters um also check out my other podcasts if you're into a little tv show called king of the hill me and my very funny friend avery moore are just watching it and talking about it it's real funny and uh my my uh super secret weapon to take down the entire comedy industry my podcast why you mad that i do with luisa diaz who is a genius uh anthropologist and comedy booker why you mad is back after fucking almost a year hiatus 10 months or something like that boom back at it we're having a great time so listen to all my shit and and subscribe and support because i'm almost not poor and i gotta tell you it's worse than just being poor. <laughs> Seeing the light at the end of the tunnel like that. Yeah, it's kind of like edging. Not that it I know. really is. Not that I. Not that I would know. <laughs> uh, edge, edging is yeah. It's like uh, being in the working class in a sense of Truly. of coming. It's you. You're kept in the surplus coming economy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> On that note, it's, it's finished. It's done edging. Yep. <laughs>